Chapter 10 of the Boy Scouts on Swift River by Thornton W. Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 An Unexpected Meeting. It was not four o'clock when the two canoes were drawn out at the old lumber camp, but Woodhull felt that they were not likely to strike so good a campground beyond, and furthermore, he felt that they all needed a little relaxation after the recent excitement, to say nothing of the need for overhauling things generally. An ideal location for the tents was soon found, and they were pitched at once. While this was in progress, Walter investigated the food bag to ascertain the results of the rough treatment it had received by the moose. As one by one he lifted out the inner bags, he grew more and more appreciative of this simple and handy arrangement for carrying food supplies, and blessed the foresight which had prompted him to add this convenience to their outfit. All of these inner bags were intact, such things as flour, meal, sugar, salt, etc., were, of course, none the worse for the pounding they had received. But other things had not fared so well. The bag of evaporated potatoes held hardly a whole slice, most of them being reduced to mere crumbs. The crackers had fared no better. The rolls of herbverse were intact, but the other powdered soups, put up in little packages, had burst from their wrappings and were hopelessly mixed. Walter chuckled. It's a regular potpourri. It'll save me the trouble of asking what kind of soup is wanted each day. I'll be sure of suiting everybody. Onion, pea, bean, lentil, barley, rice, all out of the same kettle. At the bottom of the bag was the two-pound can of powdered milk. It looked as if it had been through the wars. It was battered and dented. The cover had been forced off, and half the contents was in the bag. Lucky the bag's clean muttered Walter as he carefully scraped up the precious powder and transferred it into one of the small bags, of which he had brought along several extra for just such an emergency. It was too early to think of supper yet, so at Woodhall's suggestion Hal and Walter rigged their rods and, with some fat crickets and a few grasshoppers which they found in the clearing, started to try their luck in a little trout brook which brawled pleasantly riverward on the edge of the cutting. Lewis and Plimpton, meanwhile, prepared to wash out their trampled belongings. The trout were hungry and bit readily, so that in an hour the two fishermen had a big enough mess for dinner. Just as they were preparing to start for camp, Walter discovered a two-foot garter snake, and after a brief chase captured it. Reaching camp, they found Woodhall and Plimpton rubbing and scrubbing at the water's edge. "'What luck?' called Lewis without looking up. "'Lily,' replied Walter." Brought along a friend to make a call. As the two boys turned to see who it was, he tossed a little garter snake at their feet. It fell rather nearer to Plimpton than to Woodhall, and in his confused fright, glided straight toward him. With a yell of terror, Plimpton sprang backward, lost his footing, and fell headlong into the river. Walter and Hal stood aghast while Woodhall promptly sprang to Plimpton's assistance, and in a moment had him ashore, white-faced and shuddering. It was seldom that any of the boys had ever seen Woodhall angry, but he was angry now, and he turned on Walter savagely. "'Is that your idea of a joke?' he added cuttingly. "'If it is the sooner you cut it out, the better. Honest fun is one thing, but practical jokes, which have for their basis the frightening of other people, are neither smart nor witty, and no gentleman and no true scout will ever stoop so low as to be guilty of them.' Walter's cheeks burned. "'I didn't do it to scare anybody, Lewis.' I didn't enter my mind that anybody but a woman would be afraid of a little garter snake. His lips curled with something of contempt and scorn. 
If I had any idea the sister would be afraid of a harmless little wriggler like that, I'd have left him where I found him. Plimpton, I'm sorry. That's all right, Walt, replied the younger boy. I I don't know why it is, but the very sight of a snake sends a kind of horror all over me. He shuddered as he spoke. I know just as well as you the most snakes are harmless, and I've tried with all my might to reason myself out of such a foolish fear, but, but the minute I lay eyes on anything that looks like a snake, I just go all to pieces. I simply can't help it. Plimpton went into his tent to put on dry clothing, and while Hal gathered the firewood, Walter prepared dinner. It was not until after the last of the lusciously brown trout had disappeared and the boys lay sprawled in lazy contentment on the ground, while the water heated for the dishwashing, that any further reference to the unfortunate episode was made. Then Woodhull quietly brought the subject up again and explained how in many people, men and women alike, is an inborn antipathy to snakes which seemingly they are powerless to overcome. It appears, he explained, to be a psychological rather than physical condition and to throw its victims into a state of absolute terror over which reason has no control. Not infrequently it leads to hysterics, nor is it confined to snakes alone. Some people are possessed by the same horror and fear of the common house-cat and are thrown into a frenzy by the approach of the animal. The victim of such a fear is not to be laughed at or sneered at. Rather, he should be pitied as one who is himself helpless in the matter, and every effort should be made to protect him from exposure to it. This feeling regarding snakes is of such common occurrence that to suddenly display one of the reptiles in the immediate presence of those whose feeling toward them you do not know is dangerous in the extreme and may be attended with serious results. Don't make the mistake of laying Plimpton's fright to cowardice. It was nothing of the kind. The proof of that you had evidence of today in his nervy photographing of the moose. That reminds me, Plimpton, Lewis turned to his bunkie. You took chances this morning. Oh, yes, you did, as Plimpton shook his head. Just look at that wash out there. That speaks for itself as to the temper of the brute. No man has a right to run serious risk unless some good end is to be gained. Don't forget that, any of you fellows. When you are tempted to do things just for fun which may subject you to risk of loss of life or serious injury. Here endeth this sermon. "'Don't you think that the end gained justified sister in the risk he took?' asked Hal. "'Well, not exactly. The photographs will be mighty nice to have, but we should have been just as well off without them,' replied Woodhall. "'And the four apostles of truth would have been branded as liars when we got home and told that story? No, sir, no smooch like that on my integrity.' I say that the end justified the risk, and that sister saved our reputations as well as his own, protested Hal stoutly. Plimpton, you are fully exonerated, declared Woodhull, joining the general laugh. At that moment a shout from the rear brought the three boys to their feet, for there was no mistaking that familiar voice. Pat Malone, they shouted as one. Tis a shot right in the center, however you did yous do it. "'And me so bashful and retiring,' replied the newcomer, approaching rapidly, his broad, freckled Irish face alight with pleasure. He paused abruptly just before reaching them, brought his heels together smartly and gravely, gave the salute of the scout leader. Then, with a twinkle in his blue eyes, he extended the left hand to each in turn and gave them the scout grip. 
"'Sure it does the heart have me good "'to give me two eyes on the likes of yous again,' "'said he as he seated himself among them "'after being introduced to Plimpton. "'But tell me, however did you stray so far from camp? "'And does the doctor know you're out?' "'A twinkle in his eyes belied the seeming anxiety in his voice. "'It was the same old irrepressible Pat, "'the chore boy of the Durant lumber camp "'who played so important a part in the life of Woodcraft Camp the previous summer. "'He was a trifle stockier, a bit heavier, "'but otherwise he had changed little. "'The broad, humorous mouth was as ready as ever to break into smiles, "'and the spirit of fun lurked in the honest blue eyes.' Upton and Pat had established warm friendship the summer before, and it was a question now which was the more glad to see the other. "'How's that patrol you said you started at Upper Chain?' asked Walter. "'Fine,' replied Pat promptly. "'If yous want to learn scouting, just come over to Upper Chain, and we'll teach it to yous. "'Sure tis the Bull Moose Patrol that I be proud of. "'Tis the finest bunch of boys in the North Woods.' "'Compared with them, yous all be tenderfeet, "'saving Master Woodhall here, "'when it comes a scoutin' in the woods. "'And they be layman fast manin' of honor, "'the which I have had to bait into the heads of some of them "'with me two fists.' "'He spoke so frankly and was so openly sincere "'that when he said this, all four hearers broke into a hearty laugh. "'I bet you did, "'and that the heads stayed sore "'until they were in no danger of forgetting the meeting,' said Lewis. Pat grinned. "'Twas a thrifle difficult to make the maining clear,' he confessed, hastening to add. "'But tis a fine sense of honor they do be having now, and the two hands of me do be getting soft for the want of something to exercise them on.' He held up his work-hardened hands and slowly closed them into big fists, as hard as iron, and all the time regarding them with such simulated mournfulness that his companions were convulsed. "'But what were yous doing way off here?' "'Tell me that,' he demanded. This was soon explained, and in their turn the boys demanded of Pat where he had come from and what he was doing there. He explained that he was working for another lumber company this season and that the camp was close by. "'Tis but a step and a half and one more beyond the little hill over there. I saw the smoke of your fire and, like a good scout, I investigated. It was a wash day with yous.' He pointed to the clothes spread on the neighboring bushes. At once Pat was told the day's experience, and as he listened his blue eyes twinkled with appreciation. "'That old long-legged, hump-shouldered son of mischief!' he exclaimed. "'So you has met up with him when he was possessed of that lonesome feeling and was after wanting company. Some day he'll be taking a little lead pill by way of a cure if he doesn't watch out.' Woodhall looked up quickly. "'Do you know him?' he inquired. "'Sure I know of the old Spalpeen,' replied Pat. "'Everybody in these parts does. "'He's hung around that carry all summer. "'He's got so used to people passing back and forth "'that he thinks nothing at all at all of him. "'He's been up in the camp there more than once. "'Till lately he's been a prince of good nature. "'But since he's got them big horns of his, "'he's been getting a thrifle too independent.' Last week two of the boys met him on the carry, and he chased them clean into the river. Tis lucky you's were that he didn't lose his temper sooner. Woodhall rose and stretched. Pat, said he, you have taken a load off my mind. I couldn't account for the way that big beast behaved any way I tried. Now I understand. 
Familiarity breeds contempt, they say, and that's the reason he had so little regard for us. I suspect that someone had salted him once or twice, and he just hung around as a hint to us. Only we didn't have the high sign then, and didn't understand him. Right yous are, responded Pat. The boys used often to take a bit of salt along when they did be going up the river. Now I think they'd be taking a rifle instead. Did you say that he sometimes comes into your camp over there? asked Hal. That's what he does, though tis a good bit since I've laid eyes on him. And we are not out of his range yet, said Hal. What if he should take a notion to make us another visit? Somehow the thought wasn't a pleasant one but it was speedily forgotten for the time being as the raucous call of a crow sounded directly overhead. Pat looked up and gave a peculiar whistle. The crow circled once or twice and gradually dropped down until he came to rest on Pat's shoulder. "'Crafty Mike!' cried Walter in pleased surprise. "'Crafty Mike it is, the old thief,' replied Pat. "'Tis Satan do be inside the black skin of him.' and he gets me into trouble faster than I can pull myself out. But I have a weakness of heart for him just the same. For Plimpton's benefit, the story of Mother Miriam's pin was then told. How early the preceding summer a pin belonging to the doctor's wife had mysteriously disappeared from Woodcraft, and suspicion had fallen heavily on Pat, and how through the scoutcraft of Walter, the real culprit who was none other than this same crafty Mike, had been discovered and the pin recovered. The crow listened, his head to one side, as if he understood every word, all the time keeping up a running fire of crow talk in an undertone in Pat's ear. At Pat's invitation, it was decided to pay the lumber camp a visit that evening. The chores were quickly done, everything was made ready for the night, and under Pat's guidance, all hands hit the trail for the lumber camp. It was less than two miles distant, and there they received a hearty welcome from the rough lumberjacks. Several of them knew Woodhall, and Pat's happy introduction of Walter as the boy that gave me the best lickin' I ever got served to set all hands at ease. A little French Canuck brought out his fiddle, and the boys had a chance to see how a real backwoods breakdown is danced. Pat did an Irish jig that was vigorously applauded by all hands. At the end of it he disappeared for a few minutes, "'returning with a set of boxing gloves in his hands. "'A young woodsman but a little older than Pat "'was induced to put them on with him for a three-round bout. "'It was give and take for the most part, "'Pat having rather the best of it, "'for his opponent knew nothing of the art of boxing, "'and his one object seemed to be to hit his opponent "'regardless of his own defense. "'But the life of the lumber camps is rough, "'and its play is rough, "'so neither lad seemed to mind in the least "'the blows rained upon him. At the end of the bout, the two oldest men wrestled for the camp championship. It was after this that Walter eyed with suspicion Pat's approach with the gloves in his hands. Put them on with me for three rounds, Walt, my boy, he wheedled. I want to show these innocent children of the forest what the gintler of fighting is like when it's between two gentlemen. His broad mouth opened in a smile that showed all his teeth. By this time the lumberman had a hint what was going on and loudly urged Walter to put on the gloves and take the conceit out of the young bantam. He hesitated, but could not well refuse, and finally consented if Woodhall would act as referee and Hal as timekeeper. As they faced each other, both boys were thinking of their first meeting, when Walter had interfered with Pat bullying a boy smaller than himself, 
and then through superior knowledge of boxing and wrestling had soundly thrashed a young woodsman, although the latter was far his superior in weight and strength. Later the two boys had become fast friends, and Walter had taught Pat the rules of the game, and some of its simpler points. "'I have me little dancing step that yous taught me last summer, and I have a swing that is like to knock the block off yous if it lands. So watch out! I'm the terrible terror of one-luck camp!' warned Pat, his eyes sparkling with mischief. Woodall called time, and in a circle formed by the entire camp, the two boys sparred for an opening. Walter was a clever boxer, and though he was much the lighter of the two, he did not much fear the outcome unless Pat should by chance land one of his wild swings. The Irish lad on his part had no intention of hitting hard, but in his excitement and his desire to strike swiftly, he unconsciously put in all the strength of his big frame. Walter knew that if one of those swings should connect with his jaw, he would surely take the count. It was a lively enough three rounds to satisfy all hands. Walter found that Pat had learned to make good use of the dancing steps he had taught him. End of chapter 10